Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now here's something you may have noticed about MTF Labs and the MTF community. We're interested in more than one thing at a time. Call it interdisciplinarity, the intersection of science and art, creative innovation, cross-sectoral collaboration. It's about taking things that aren't always considered related or even compatible and people who might on the surface have no apparent reason to spend time in the same room as each other, let alone share notes or build something together, and collide them, cross the streams. As someone who's studied and written about creativity in the scientific domain and the inclusion of arts into places that they've traditionally been left out of, is Professor Robert Root Bernstein. A physiologist at Michigan State University, Robert co-wrote a book called Sparks of Genius, The 13 Thinking Tools of the World's Most Creative People, with his wife, the poet Michelle Root Bernstein. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, the so-called Genius Grant, and has written extensively on topics such as autoimmune disease, molecular complementarity, as well as the history and philosophy of science. And he's done it from a broad perspective that emphasizes the importance and rigor of artistic and creative thinking. Robert Root Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us for the MTF Labs podcast today. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. It's nice to see you. And, and somebody who is so widely published on the thing about which we are most interested in, which is the intersection of art and science. Do you want to tell us just a little sort of potted history of, of, of what your job is and, and what that means? Well, so my job description doesn't have a lot to do with what I actually do. <laughs> I'm a professor of physiology. I actually joined my current university, Michigan State University, in the Department of Natural Sciences, which I really enjoyed because it had people from all the different sciences. And we got to teach non-science majors their science, so trying to make it exciting and interesting to people who, well, just to give you an idea, I'd ask at the beginning of the first class, how many of you hate science? And about 90% of the hands would go up. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, the university and its wisdom decided to get rid of that department, so I needed to find another home and uh, much narrower physiology department. So um, my actual work act does have a lot to do with uh, biology. I, I work on autoimmune diseases and uh, oddly enough, the origin of life at the same time. Mm. Um, and it, interesting intersections in the sense that uh, very little is known about how uh, the first receptors and transporters, which are often the targets in autoimmune diseases, uh, were evolved in the very first protocells. So mm. it's kind of a strange connection, but one I like to make. And then um, I've always been interested in what makes some scientists much more creative than others, which got me into uh, the subjects that I think are the ones that excite you the most, um, which is, you know, where does creativity come from? And um, how do you get, how do you train people to be more creative? Well, here's a question that might not be uh, the ordinary one you get, but given your, um, your, your official title, it might be one that you're qualified to at least address, is, is there a biological uh, source for creativity? So that's a really interesting and complex question. Um, 
there seem to be changes in creative people's brains. Einstein perhaps is the one whose brain been been most uh, studied, uh, suggesting that uh, creative people have a lot more connections, particularly in the midbrain, um, uh, than lots of other people. So uh, that actually fits with what I know about, or at least what I think that creativity is, which is often combining uh, parts uh, of, of skills, knowledge, experiences in new ways. Uh, so there's sort of two things that you would have to have to make this all work, which is uh, unusually broad experiences, or at least a, a, an unusual mix of experiences, mm -hmm. and then some way to connect those in novel and interesting ways. And certainly uh, by the time we get to look at your brain, um, which is, you know, after we've already identified you as being creative. So, you know, whether it was always there or it develops because of the way you, you live your life, uh, those connections are certainly there. Yeah, it does raise the question of cause and effect there, doesn't it? There, there are these connections and this person was creative. Which one made the other one happen? Yes, I, I was once asked by a very, very rich, you know, multi-billionaire if I could come up with a program that would, you know, that he could fund that would somehow test all this stuff of, you know, were you born with it or is this something that we can cultivate in people? And, you know, beyond <laughs> taking a bunch of identical twins, splitting them up <laughs> purposefully, you know, giving one set, one set of experiences and the other, the other set, which would be extremely unethical. Uh, I couldn't really think of a way to do that. So, uh, you know, never got funded. <laughs> we may never know. What's your hunch? My hunch, I think it's probably a combination. Um, just looking at people I know and, you know, my own kids, for example, uh, we try to give them pretty much the same access to different experiences, but their personalities were such that they went off in quite different directions. Um, I think they've both become reasonably creative, uh, but putting together very, very different kinds of, of information and skills and so forth. And uh, so I think part of it's what you feel you're good at. It, part of it's also environment. Uh, for example, my son uh, draws quite well and in recent years actually took some drawing classes, but my daughter was phenomenal as an artist at a very young age. Mm. And my son was younger. So he'd look at what she was doing and what he was doing and decided, I'm terrible, I can't draw. Now, for his age, he was actually really good, but given his environment, it, it didn't appear that way to him. And despite all the you know positive reinforcement he gave them and everything, it it still didn't quite catch on till till you know a couple of de decades later, actually. Mm. So you know, some of it's uh, you know who you grow up with and who you know, and whether there's competition, whether it, it's something that ex it's exciting for you. Um, I, I was supposedly a very good cellist when I was young, but, um, my parents unfortunately hired a couple of music teachers who pushed me way too hard. So I was the youngest cellist in a, in a youth orchestra mm. and it was simply, they were playing music that was beyond my ability. And, um, it's one of the few times where I run up against something where, you know, I come home and cry. Right. Uh, it's just, it was no fun anymore. 
And so despite you know what, the, the innate talent I might have had, uh, my experiences were not such that I developed that. Okay, so, since we're on the topic, that, that's a phrase that I have to pull out and query is uh, innate talent. Yeah, so um, I think there is to some extent innate talent. Uh, again, I think it's a combination of uh, the way you're wired and your experiences. I uh, just watching, uh, whether it's athletes or musicians or artists or people like that, there are people who very early on can control a pencil really well. They can figure out on their own how to you know, play an instrument and get the sound they want out of it. Um, they have to have training in order to you know, utilize that to the extent of reaching professional ability and so forth. Uh, there are other people I've seen that it doesn't matter how much time they spend in it. I've run into several people who are really, you know, I'm going to learn how to draw. And they spent hours and hours and hours trying to do it. Um, I run it. There was a program in the United States run by the National Public Radio NPR uh, many years ago, which I used to wait for every year. It was uh, a competition for the worst musician in the country. <laughs> and these were people who claimed to, to practice, you know, hours a day. And they couldn't sing, they couldn't play their instrument, they couldn't, it was just, it was horrible. And they would ask them, you know, do you really think you're singing well? And they'd say, well, no, but, you know, I, I try, I really try, I love doing this, and I work at it every day, but you know, no progress. So something wasn't there for those people. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm one of these people, like I like to think I'm creative and I like to think I have uh, the enthusiasm, but not the technical ability. Uh, I, I was a terrible guitarist. And I mean, I didn't, work as hard as perhaps I should have worked at it. But uh, but it was one of those things that I enjoyed. I had enthusiasm for it. And uh, and it was something that sort of satisfied me in a particular way. But just that that barrier of technical competence, yeah. uh, which is, is that an indicator of creativity? Or is that something a sep- like uh, I would like to think of it as a separate characteristic that I might have lacked? Um, so one of the things that my wife and I, Michelle, uh, and I have been working on for quite a bit recently is whether you have to be, you know, really top flight to be able to combine different skills and and experiences and so forth. Um, and we pretty much concluded the answer is no. So, you know, you clearly have a real interest in music, creativity, things like that. You may never be a great guitarist, but the experience that you had playing the guitar almost certainly allows you to ask questions to a musician or any other creative person that you would not even think to ask had you not struggled with trying to learn that. And so what we've been looking at are avocations or hobbies as being a critical part of the creative process. Mm. Um, and what we're finding is that creative people often are really good at one or two things, but almost all of them will have these several other things that they're not so good at. And yet when you start asking them, well, does this thing that you do just for your own satisfaction, and maybe you, you, know, you don't sing out loud to other people because it's too embarrassing, 
But you know, are you learning anything from doing that which feeds into your work? Um, there are a lot of people who will say yes. So you know, learning how to read music, for example, allowed me to then think about patterns and structures in new ways. So now I actually have you know, adapted a music program to analyzing my geophysical experiments. And you sit there and go, wow, so you wouldn't have done that had you not had this strange hobby. And they say, that's right. So I'm no good as a musician, but, you know, the knowledge I picked up there made this connection, which has helped out. So we think that uh, applications uh, are really critical. And then the next part is simply trying to make that connection. Um, mm -hmm. Creative people tend to look for how everything they're doing connects. What can I learn from all my experiences and feed into you know every other experience, uh, which is not all that typical. But I think that's a, definitely a strategy that's learnable. Uh, it's unfortunately a strategy which we are actually uh, trained out of in our in most schooling. Um, I I went to an elementary school where. I don't remember, I mean, I'm sure we did have, you know, an English class and a geography class and a, you know, whatever class, but most of the assignments that I remember were highly interdisciplinary. So, you know, when we learned, maybe it was geography, I don't remember what they called it, but we had to hand draw a world map. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're getting your art there. Um, then we had to label them all and learn what the major economic um, you know, exports and import ports for where the capitals were, what language they spoke. So, you know, it, the geography was also culture. It was, you know, it was a whole bunch of other things. And unfortunately, the way most schooling is, you have your English class, your math class, your science class, your whatever. So these are taught completely separately. And Michelle and I were actually invited, this might have been 10 years ago at most, to a conference uh, in one of the states, I think it might have been Utah in the United States, um, where for the first time ever, the people who taught math and the people who taught science came to the same conference and talked about how can we actually teach math and science so that they integrate at some level. But that gives you an idea how separated the, you know, you would think math and science are, are integrally related and you can't really do one without the other. And yet they were being taught for decades in this state completely separately. Right. Well, well I know that you've uh, talked about mathematics as being a language that describes particular kinds of science uh, better than other yeah. kinds of science. And that's maybe something that we'll come to. But I'm really interested in this idea of uh, the idea of kind of being able to cross the streams and bridge the gaps uh, between different types of, of knowledge and different types of thinking. Is that something that you can compartmentalize and, and maybe have each of these different specialisms in different people, but the collaboration being the point at which those things come together does that work yeah so it, there are sort of two ways to do this one is individually within yourself um the challenge there is to figure out uh when you are reading uh you know something in art and something in science for example and the languages are completely different and people are describing what they're doing it may look like what they're doing is completely different until you try it. So one of the things that I found that is, is a way to make the connections is to focus not on product, but on process. 
So the processes are almost always the same. People have to identify some kind of a challenge uh, or a problem. I, again, what, the language actually differs depending on the field you're in is you know, how people describe these things. But there, there's something you don't understand that you want to be able to do uh, or, or you, you, know, you would like to be able to do. And uh, then you have to identify the skills uh, and knowledge you need in order to be able to do that. Um, and then almost everybody tries a bunch of different things uh, to see whether, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Uh, you learn that perhaps you uh, are missing a skill, so you go back and so this becomes one of these recursive uh, systems where you go through this, did I define the right problem, do I have the right skills, until finally something starts coming out of the whole thing. Um, you test what you've got. And then there's this wonderful process of getting it out to, to whoever your public is and identifying who those people are who might be interested and convincing them that you've done something interesting, exciting, you know, whatever, whatever it is that uh, your audience is looking for from the output. So that, that can be certainly taught. Um, the languages can be taught. So Michelle and I have uh, worked on a book called Sparks of Genius, where we went and uh, interviewed probably about, I don't know, three or 400 people or read their autobiographies, things like that, trying to figure out what their creative process was and how they talked about it. Um, and this actually started because I, I had done this first with scientists and I would come home to Michelle and you know, we'd have a dinner and I'd be saying, I got read this, the weirdest <laughs> uh, interview with this famous Nobel Prize winner who says that the way he uh, thinks about uh, his chemistry is to become the electrons and you know run around inside the atom trying to figure out what he wants to do. And you know, it's, it's very odd. And she'd go, that's strange, because I was just reading a poet. He said the same thing. You know, if he wants to write about nature, he becomes the tree that he wants to, you know, to think about. And, you know, what's the experience of a tree as a tree, um, not as you looking at it? And we began to realize that these experiences were so common, we had to start talking, you know, bringing them together. And uh, interestingly, as the further we got into that, it turned out people all use the same language. So uh, very surprising. Werner Heisenberg, the, the uh, famous inventor of quantum mechanics uh, as a physicist described uh, abstracting in virtually identical terms to Picasso. Um, and this kept happening. So we, we basically just purified the language from the people who were describing what they did and said, Okay, so here are what people are doing. They're observing and they're, you know, abstracting out of their observations various patterns, and uh, from those patterns they're extrapolating, you know, to other patterns, and they're and making analogies between these patterns, trying to see connections, and um, you know, they everybody uses body thinking. There were some very strange things we didn't expect. Um, scientists often talk about taking the whole system inside their body and imagining themselves as part of that system or how they would feel if you know they were a part of it things like that something clearly musicians do all the time artists do all the time but not something we expected from the scientists um, and so you know that was the, that language then became a bridge for taking these experiences and, and uh, learning how to, to manipulate them and purify them and then that became, in a sense, the bridge to thinking about collaborations. 
because now you have the problem of people in different specialties getting together. Yeah, without that common language, they often can't see what they're doing. So one of the fun things I, I have done and Michelle's helped with some of the arts areas was uh, to work with groups that are multidisciplinary and help them figure out uh, what they wanted to do. And uh, the two key things were one, uh, coming up with a well-defined challenge that they could all agree on. Um, so we all think this is important. This is all something we want to work on. We can see where you know some of our skills fit in, uh, which gets you into that creative process of now trying things. And then the second was having this common language where they could say, I don't understand what you mean by a problem. I don't work on problems. I'm not a scientist. You know, when I make a, a piece of, you know, compose a piece of music, I don't think of it as problem solving and, you know, they go on and explain the language they use. Um, having sparks of genius and that sort of language there, then uh, there are, we have lots of examples from the different fields and they, that often allows people then find that bridge and, and decide, well, here's the term we're going to use. And it doesn't matter what the term is as long as they, they understand each other and, and can use it in a common way. Interesting. I mean, there's obviously something about ontologies for cross-disciplinary interaction that sort of raises challenges. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because like you say, people have different languages for things. But uh, I was speaking to somebody this week for this podcast who is an artist who is very interested in science and works around you know, cartography and, and, uh, and, and working with artistic representations for science communication. Yep. And her position was that uh, creative method and scientific method are the same thing. Yep. The, the approach is the same thing. So whether you call it a problem or whether you call it this is the thing that I'm thinking about here is my hypothesis yep. this is what I'm going to lay out <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's a really interesting sort of parallel for that yeah I agree so this marriage of creativity and science uh, is something you seem to embody as a couple tell me a little bit about Michelle yeah so uh, we met in graduate school um, I did something very odd which is I always knew I wanted to be a scientist um, but my training was uh, as an undergraduate, extremely narrow. <laughs> and I'm interested in big picture questions, as you can tell. Uh, that's another, another interesting issue with creativity. I mean, there are people who like small, well-defined things. Other people like to see broad. Um, again, for collaborations, getting a good mix of those people is, is very important. Um, so rather than going on doing a PhD in, in science, I decided to take a PhD in the history and philosophy of science and do focus on modern, uh, modern developments so I could sort of then get back into to lab research uh, afterwards. I had no idea how difficult that was going to be. It was not trivial at all. Um, but uh, we met in history classes because Michelle was a, a history major. Uh, French French Revolution era, and um, we just hit it off. It was one of those things where I was actually going out with someone else at the time, and uh, one night I'm sitting at the dinner table talking to Michelle, look at my watch and realize I'm late for my date with the other person, at which point I realized uh, I think I'm dating the wrong person. Um, so we, we would just have these great discussions where we would share all sorts of uh, questions, problems, issues. As a scientist, I was very interested in whether, you know, there are trends in history that uh, you could identify the same way we have sort of theories in, in science. Um, and um, 
Michelle would give me all sorts of reasons that couldn't happen or could happen, or here's a counterexample. And uh, we just, we really enjoyed the, the back and forth. And that's the way we've been ever since. So, so um, I ended up getting a MacArthur Fellowship, which gave me a whole bunch of freedom. Um, ended up working at the Salk Institute for a few years. Michelle could not find a job in the area. So what uh, we ended up doing because of my MacArthur was I sort of shared it with her. And uh, she ended up becoming a writer. So she tried writing a novel and a play and then eventually decided what she was really interested in was poetry. So she's now actually a, a very accomplished haiku poet, uh, very well known in the field, does a lot of editing. And that uh, was also part of just sort of developing our creative uh, connection in that we decided as we were studying more and more about other people's creativity that the only real way to ask the right questions and get at the essence was to constantly be trying to learn new creative things ourselves. Um, and by coming, becoming a novice, you, you know, you just look at things differently. You have to ask all these basic questions that you wouldn't otherwise. So it's sort of getting back to that point I made about you playing guitar badly. It's not whether we did it well or not. It was simply getting in there and trying something you never tried before. So it forces you to think about, you know, oh, wow, I never realized I had to learn how to do this in order to do that. Mm. And, uh, you know, how much practice is involved, all those kinds of things. It's interesting because in the book that you wrote together, uh, the, the Sparks of Genius, um, there is a, a passage in there which really sort of stuck out to me, which is about the difference between polymaths and dilettantes. Uh, and it sounds like what you're saying is, is that the second of those is not necessarily a bad thing to be. Right. Um, so actually, the way we have actually redefined polymath at this point very recently uh, to sort of incorporate this idea of avocations and hobbies. Uh, so there, there is an ongoing uh, debate within cognitive psychology is, you know, do polymaths really exist? So there, there is one group of people who, to be a polymath, you have to be you know, as good as Einstein in physics and as good as Picasso in art. Uh, so, you know, the top of both fields at the same time. Um, there are actually a couple people who are pretty close to that, um, but, you know, they're quite rare. Mm -hmm. um, we're more interested in, you know, more basically where creativity is coming from. Uh, polymaths tend to be obviously very creative and um, creative in many fields. Um, that is, but you know, what we're looking at is more generally creativity. And as we looked at people who are creative, they almost always had this thing they're really good at, but in these things from other areas as well. So you could call them dilettantes in that sense. But we've now made the distinction in the following way, that a polymath is an individual who tries to find the connections between things. Whereas the dilettante just accumulates knowledge and information for the sake of it, you know, itself. And, and uh, the best example I can think of is somebody I met when I was in college who had, uh, I think he had something like 37 master's degrees. <laughs> and, uh, I was like, so what do you wow. do with all this stuff? And he said, oh, I, I just love to learn. Right. So, you know, do you make any connections? Is it, you, no, I just, you know, anything that's different I've never done before, that's what I want to do. Oh, that's some serious dabbling. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. 
So, uh, you know, that's sort of overkill, but, and I'm sure there's a continuum here. I mean, there are, there are certainly people who are both polymaths and dilettantes at the same time because you can't connect absolutely everything. It's probably too difficult. Mm. Um, you talk in the book about modes of thinking, the sort of the the idea of visual thinking and kinesthetic thinking and verbal thinking and yeah. different modes and people have different things. And it seems to be that being able to do all of those things would be a desirable thing to do. Is it... Is that possible? Is it something? Is it learnable? I mean, I, I think of myself as being somebody with no visual imagination whatsoever. I'm, I'm completely auditory. I, you know, I understand things by hearing them or by speaking them. Um, but could I learn to be a visual thinker? Uh, yes, you can certainly improve it because it's definitely a skill. And there are, are actually a lot of formal studies about visual thinking in particular. Um, so. The, the problem here in science is, uh, which raised all these studies in the first place, was that uh, white males tend to do really well in science, whereas minority students, um, females, were not doing as well. And one of the things that popped out pretty quickly was that uh, success in science is highly associated with visual thinking, uh, ability to see things in three dimensions, rotate them all, you know, do things like that. So the next question was, is this, as you said before, is this innate or is this something that's learnable? And it turns out that um, it's certainly highly learnable. Um, and some of this may, the skill that we see in, in you know, white males may have come from you know, playing baseball and football and whatever you're developing your spatial ability just through sports and, and things like that. Um, who knows? I mean, nobody's really tracked all this down. Um, but it turns out that if you give people formal drawing, sculpting, uh, computer-aided design, it doesn't really matter what kind of training, um, all of their uh, visual abilities will increase in terms of anything we measure. And oddly enough, uh, even without tying this directly to, say, science or math, um, people's ability in science and math increase in terms of just passing their courses um, you know, standardized test scores, whatever they, their, their interest, whether they stay in the science, for example. So um, definitely trainable. And uh, we've done a recent review looking at this for the other, what we call tools for thinking, abstracting, analogizing, pattern forming. Um, not nearly as good as studies for those, but it appears that all of those are, are certainly trainable as well. Now, I think to get at your point that you know you're not particularly visual. Um, I think there are people. Again, this has something to do with talent, but it probably also has to do with your uh, how you use your other senses as well. So you may privilege your oral ability because that's you know that's what you get your kicks out of. Sure, it's my thing. Yeah, and so uh, initially I was very skeptical that when there were people who were like completely non-visual. But then I began running into people who said, I can't read a map. I cannot draw you, you know, where to go. But I can tell you as a set of operations that you go one block over, make a left, two blocks, and then make a right. And, you know, this, and so, you know, I have this equivalent to what we call spatial, but they're not seeing it. It's literally a set of, I walk this far and I, and I do something. Um, so it's in a sense a mechanical sense which functions in the same way or replaces it. 
And so I'm fairly convinced that although, yeah, it would be all of our 13 thinking skills all at the highest possible level, probably nobody does. And it's not even necessary that, you know, what we collaborative groups is, uh, you know, people who are really good at visual thinking, but also people who are really good at other kinds of patterns like oral patterns, uh, you know, what things you'd hear in, or see in music um, and, and things like that, because each of those uh, people is going to bring a different way of thinking about a pattern or a different way of visualizing something or a different way of expressing uh, their insights. And, the, and that's where a lot of the, in, the creativity would come from. I, I guess it comes down to, for me, when people say, picture this in your head, do other people see pictures? Is it like literally yeah. seeing? Be- yeah, so I Because I that's do. not something I experience. <laughs> yeah, I do. And that, that's why I had problems thinking, you know, people like couldn't do this. I'm like, I have no problem seeing, you know, a red pentagon, which is flipping with a blue thing going through it. And, you know, it, it's, uh, but then I, you know, I've been drawing before I could probably write. Sure. So you know, some of this, I think, is is definitely experience and just practice. Yeah, well, I understand all the words and the concepts that you just said, but I, I did did not have yeah. an image yeah. uh, in no, front of I, me. I, that and, and I imagine I, I other people that. do. I mean, that's that's actually what's interesting uh, uh, about when you start thinking about these different tools. Of, so let's talk a little bit about what's sort of increased in popularity, I guess, in, in the discourse of education is the shift from STEM to STEAM uh, and the relationship of, of how the arts fits into that. Because a lot of the way that you hear about it is that it's not about teaching arts as a subject along the same you know, uh, value chain as science and technology, but it's a way of using creativity to teach the STEM subjects. Is that your understanding of this? Uh, so I think that's the common approach to it. I have my reservations. So this is very strange because I'm, at least in the US, considered one of the big proponents for STEAM. Um, but I'm not a proponent who uh, sees this as the answer to, you know, creativity and science and things like that. Um, Again, I think that what the arts do that science teaching doesn't do, and this isn't science, I'm not talking about the teaching of these things, um, is that if you are learning to play an instrument, if you are becoming a graphic artist, whatever, you have to do it. You have to get in there and you have to actually try to play the instrument. You have to sing here. You have to, you know, compose. Um, the artist has to draw something. You have to be bad at it for a while first. That's right. And you're going to fail and you're going to, you know, and that's part of this learning. Creative process is mainly failing. I don't care what area you're in. It's it's very frustrating. Sure. Um, so, you know, that's part of part of learning that process, but also then developing those skills that are associated with it, whether it's manipulative skills or, uh, you know, if you're a musician, you've got, you're transforming a bunch of symbols on a page into sounds and you're trying to add emotion to them. And I mean, just, there are all sorts of things going on there, which you have to eventually integrate and synthesize, which is sort of our, our final tool, synthesizing everything together. You don't just start there. Uh, you know, nobody just starts playing music that has technical perfection and emotion and you know, all that stuff. It's, it's tough. Um, when you learn science, it's almost completely passive. 
you know, so, you know, here, here's a problem, here's the uh, solution, which we're going to now apply it to a similar problem. It's really not doing science. It's solving problems other people solve. They're the ones who are creative about it. They're the ones who went through the process. We never have process in science at all. So just to give you an example, I had a group of uh, really, really bright honor students about 10 years ago. I was talking to them after a class on physiology and I said, so, you know, now everybody now knows what insulin is and how it does, you know, what it does and how it does it. So, you know, let me pose you a problem. Your grandfather is a diabetic, World War III starts, the supply of insulin disappears. You live on a farm um, where, you know, they're raising pigs and cows and so forth. So knowing what you know, can you figure out how to give your father insulin or your grandfather insulin? They just looked at me like, what? They said, so, you know, where's the insulin come from? And so we went through all this stuff, you know, they knew where it came from. They'd never seen a pancreas. They had no idea how to identify it. Um, they'd never isolated anything out of a tissue. So they had no idea what the process of isolating something was. Um, they didn't know how to test for insulin activity other than, you know, well, you know, it's in a bottle and it works. Um, it was really frightening. So, you know, they couldn't, and, and then I asked them, well, do you know who discovered it? No. Do you know who's discovered anything in science? No. Uh, so, you know, unlike the, the musician who has to make the music or the composer who has to compose music, we're graduating huge numbers of science students who know passively about the science, but in reality, they've never done any science. Right. And so adding the art in there is giving them some of those skills. Uh, and some of those skills are becoming really um, rare. So I'm now getting more and more students in my lab who can't handle a pipette. I had one kid who picked up this pipette and you would have thought that he was holding a machete or something and sure that he was going to hurt himself or somebody with it. <laughs> and that's the way he tried pipette. He was just squirting things all over the place. Um, I asked him, you know, what kind of experience have you ever had making or doing? And he said, nothing. He's never built anything, never made a model, never drew anything. You know, he, were, he spent his entire life on a computer. And so, you know, STEAM is going to allow us to at least, at least graduate students who can hold a pipette and have some hand-eye coordination to go along with it, things like that. Uh, they're also going to have a sense of what that creative process is. And so I think that's very important. There's a third way that it can be useful, and that's there are areas where there are direct connections. So if you want to teach uh, analogizing, for example, or pattern forming, um, Sometimes it's hard to do that in science. We give kids, you know, the entire periodic table and say, memorize it. They're not seeing how to form that pattern. Whereas if you give them a simple art project where they have to take different colors and form patterns out of them, um, they can learn how to do that. And then you give them a small set of the, you know, periodic table. They can now try to, try to understand what the principles are, how you would organize this and they you know, a logical way. There is logic to, you know, an art pattern, which is something that you, that you would learn. Um, so there are places where we can teach specific skills of use to the scientist through the art by teaching how to do the art itself. And so one of the things I'm, I'm very adamant about is that when we teach art within 
a science context, the art has to be taught as art. Um, the principles of the art, you know, the, the standards of the art, all those things have to be maintained. It's not simply a handmaiden to, to the science. Uh, otherwise, you're going to lose what's valuable about, about the art. On the other hand, um, one of the things, again, that Michelle and I just published was a look at Nobel Prize winners. And uh, we sort of had two uh, goals in this, this study. So we looked at all 510 science, and I don't remember how many, there's you know, many more of the economics piece, um, you know, literature and so forth, um, and tried to figure out what were they doing when, you know, did they have these multiple hobbies? Did they have multiple applications or, or vocations or things like that? What we found was that uh, virtually every Nobel Prize winner is as we would expect because they're highly creative, they're polymathic in some way. What we were somewhat surprised to find was when you moved out of the sciences, the arts became much less important. So in economists, you, art is almost un, unknown. There, there are very few economists, Nobel economists who are musicians. Um, that's not where they're getting their polymathy from. What they're doing is they're combining a real interest in social science and humanities with mathematics. So it's a combination of this very hard, you know, modeling sort of stuff with a very human set of problems and seeing if you can bring these together. Um, so I think it's a mistake to say, you know, art is going to necessarily give you creativity. Your creativity is going to come from bringing together things uh, from different disciplines people have never done before. And then we also discovered that like among the scientists, although there are a huge number of scientists, you know, artists, musicians, poets, playwrights, you know, all the kinds of things that we, we see and what are the rationales for STEAM, um, we also found a fairly significant group of Nobel Prize winners in the science who had none of those things. But what they had instead was very formal training in usually three different sciences. So you'd have um, Herb Simon, for example, one of the guys who uh, invents economics, artificial, or some of the economic principles, artificial intelligence, cognitive psychology, and he's involved in all sorts of different things. Um, and he's got this amazing set of, of different formal training that he gets in, involved with. And that's very typical of another group of people. So again, the art isn't the necessary clue or, or skill. Um, it's one of the possible skills that you, you can bring in. Among the arts, is there something privileged or special about music or is that just a, a particular bias that I have and share with some other people? <laughs> Um, so maybe, I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. So the, the research is, is somewhat contradictory at this point. Uh, there does seem to be a real connection between uh, mathematical sciences, math itself, and musical ability. Uh, so, you know, whereas I think maybe 20% of scientists in general uh, have a, a music avocation that's fairly highly developed. Uh, in Nobel Prize winners, it was close to 50%. And in mathematicians, it was something like 90%. Um, 
So, you know, there's definitely something going on there. The studies where they've tried to introduce music into curricula and see if that improves, say, math scores or math learning is somewhat iffy. Um, what we think is going often, it's just take music lessons, you'll be better at math. Not necessarily, because most people aren't going to make the connections unless somebody points them out. In the ones that work, somebody's sitting down and going, okay, what's the musician trying to do with these patterns? You know, why are they repeating in this way? Uh, how do you overlay them with other patterns to get, you know, four on three polyrhythms and, you know, things that you, if you're not a trained musician, might not see that are there. And then let's look at these equations. Um, what are these equations doing? Oh, wow, look at that. When you put them together, they're creating a polyrhythm. <laughs> you know, if we graph them out or something like that. So uh, when you do that, you definitely get some, some real increases in learning. Mm. Are there particular types of thinking that correlate with financial success, for instance? Because most of the artists I know, uh, art doesn't seem to be the one that, uh, that guarantees that. <laughs> yeah, so that's an interesting question too. Um, one thing, I've been very active in the, the arts uh, program at Michigan State, and uh, there are various groups that have been looking into what skills artists need to succeed. One of them is definitely be an entrepreneur, uh, and most arts, art schools don't teach those skills. What the other set of the research is doing is not only do you know, artists really need this because they're often working in their own studio and selling their own work, um, is uh, an interesting maybe selection for who artists are. So lots of artists in a huge national survey here in the US uh, admitted to having much lower incomes than they could have had they chosen all sorts of other things. Um, and they definitely do have lower incomes on average. On the other hand, their life satisfaction was much higher than, than almost anybody else. So as long as they could make a living doing what they wanted to do, um, the artists were very happy, uh, you know, earning a small amount and being able to do what they wanted to do rather than working for, you know, some corporation and making three times the salary or whatever. So uh, that's also another interesting thing about creative people is they're often not motivated by, uh, you know, financial gain, things like that. They're motivated by solving the challenge or the problem or doing, you know, what, creating the thing they want to create rather than, than uh, working for somebody else. Sure. And the idea of art as a contribution is a, is a particularly topical thing at the moment because there's a lot of discussion about what are the essential jobs, uh, particularly yep. with, the, with the COVID pandemic. And in a survey in Britain, the least essential job was seen to be artist. Is that something that you would go along with? Because that sort of raised a lot of eyebrows. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, to begin with, if you look at what most people are doing in their you know, downtime during the pandemic, it all has to do with the arts. I mean, you know, they're getting on YouTube and they're watching what people have created. They're listening to music. Um, the number of coloring books that are being sold and art supplies has dramatically gone up worldwide. Uh, you know, people are finding ways, they're knitting, uh, fabric arts are, are just booming. Um, so, you know, when people have to be on their own, the arts are what we turn to to keep ourselves sane and, and happy. 
So just at that level, um, actually all of these questions were raised during World War II. Uh, I found a survey uh, and a bunch of uh, documents having to do with whether arts were something we could get rid of all, close all the art schools in, you know, say Britain during World War II, because we don't need them. Uh, you know, what, what good is art during a war? <laughs> um, and interestingly, all of the top people in uh, science and technology said that's the stupidest thing you could possibly do. And in their case, it came down to the argument I was making earlier that the skills that the arts are teaching, uh, the ability to you know, draw a bl blueprint, the ability to visualize a three-dimensional uh, invention, all these things are, are not being taught in your typical engineering or science courses. And what they were finding was the scientists and inventors and engineers who could do these things almost all had art training of some kind. Uh, and then, of course, the great mathematicians, all the mathematicians were, were involved in music just about. So um, that was just cutting off their, you know, their legs to, <laughs> in terms of their creative ability. So, Sure. There's also the great uh, Winston Churchill line about, otherwise, what are we fighting for? Yeah, no. And, yeah. And, and at the level of just culture, our, our, all of our values are, are embedded in our, in our arts. So, um that's something that, in, unfortunately, in, uh, we don't have in science. And I, this may be why the most creative people uh, are turning to arts uh, along with uh, doing their science or their engineering or things like that, which is that, uh, you know, the in the science, we have to take ourselves out. Uh, yes, I get very excited about, passionate about what I'm doing in my laboratory and the discoveries we're making. But when I put it out to the public, um, I have to put it in a form where the most virulent skeptic will still agree that I've reached the right conclusion. And so it's not me, it's not my excitement, none of that has anything to do with, with the output. And I think that's a problem we have with science that when we take ourselves out of it, we take the passion that goes into the discoveries, uh, the public looks at, at the product and says it's soulless. And in some ways, it, it's not not the way I make it. And somehow we need to have, uh, you know, the art put back into it so that the way that I get there and the excitement that I feel and the collaborations that I have and the people I work with and, and all that humanity that's there uh, can be put back in. And to me, that's what STEAM would eventually do. It's not just putting art back in, but it's putting human beings back in at the center. <laughs> So finally, I guess, what's left for you to find out about this uh, on this front? Oh, gosh, <laughs> huge amounts. Um, so uh, one of the things that I'm working on now uh, is how you actually identify challenges and problems. So you would think this would be really obvious, right? I mean, this is where everything starts. Uh, how do you decide you want to write a new piece of music or uh, even a higher level, you know, when do you need a new style of music or how do you take two different styles and put them together or you know, whatever. General questions like that aren't hard to come up with, but they're meaningless. I don't know what to do with that. Um, asking that kind of question doesn't get me anywhere. So how to figure out what a problem is or challenges that's really worth working on and define it in a way that I can actually start doing something about it. 
And we know almost nothing about that. And yet, if you think about it, that's the start of all creativity. There has to be some challenge I don't understand, some problem I can't solve, some, you know, whatever. Um, then the other aspect of that is how do you know whether the problem you have identified is the right problem? So there's starting to be some research on this, but one of the biggest failings that we have is we often go about solving the wrong problem. We think we're doing the right thing, but uh, if you solve the wrong problem the wrong way, you often create new problems. And we're gonna see this with any real world, world situation. We've got a vaccine, how do we deliver it to the right people? Well, who's the right people? What do you mean by deliver? Uh, FedEx or whatever can get the stuff where we need it, but if they don't have a refrigerator that's appropriate to storing it for long enough for the people to get it, that doesn't do any good. And if my target group is elderly people who don't drive and are afraid to get on a bus because of the pandemic, they may not come in to get the vaccine. So, you know, solving the problem of getting a vaccine isn't necessarily a problem that I actually need to solve. It's a very small part of the problem I need to solve. And so we often chunk things into little bits because we can solve the little bit, but that doesn't necessarily solve the actual problem we need to solve. So these are kinds of questions I'm trying to work on is, you know, how do we, how do we even start this whole creative process <laughs> And uh, the problem of problems, is, which is what I call it, is is basically unstudied at this point. Well, so we're good at finding creative answers. We just need to learn how to ask better questions. Yeah, that is one of the most important aspects that we cannot solve at this point. Yeah. Sounds like <laughs> a good question to ask. Robert Root Bernstein, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. This has been great. That's Professor Robert Root Bernstein, and that's the MTF Podcast. I'm Dubber at Dubber on Twitter, and you'll find MTF Labs at mtflabs.net and at MTF Labs on all the social networks, bits and pieces. This episode was made with the help of Jen Kukuchka, and the music was by Airtone and Kyle Preston. Thanks for listening. If you haven't subscribed in iTunes yet or Apple Podcasts, don't. There's a new thing on the app, which is a little plus button on the top right. You click on that and you're following the MTF podcast. Same thing, different words, and they've moved the buttons around. Let me know how you get on with that. You can, of course, find us wherever you listen to podcasts. It doesn't have to be the Apple stuff. Or you can just go to mtflabs.net slash mtfpodcast for every episode we've ever made. And don't forget, you can share, like, rate, and review. And I'll catch you back here next week. Let's talk soon. Cheers. Thank you.